0: NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. When Continental Carbon wanted to build a factory near an Indian reservation in Oklahoma, they promised people living nearby there'd be no pollution.
1: I said, will it get everything black when they move? And no, 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 it'll be all right, he said.
0: But decades later, parts of the reservation are covered with a layer of carbon, the ingredient that gives car tires their unique color.
2: It's left the air and the water tainted black and residents seeing red. Eyo, sister. That's what lying means, eyo, sister. But they don't care, they don't care. They're gonna stay lie and lie and lie and lie. And that's why we're in trouble, yeah. We're in trouble today.
0: Trouble with a capital T in Ponca City, Oklahoma, this week on Living on Earth. Also, bringing the Owens River back to life and why an unmade bed is better for you. Stick around.
3: Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm.
0: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman, sitting in for Steve Kerwood. If you've ever visited the Ship Channel, a man-made waterway leading from the Gulf of Mexico into Houston, Texas, you know, and there's no polite way to put this, but it stinks. Some people say it's just the smell of money. The corridor stretching along Ship Channel is lined with refineries and chemical plants. In fact, it's the second largest petroleum complex in the world. The area also has the dubious distinction of competing with Los Angeles for the worst air in the nation. How bad is it? Well, last summer, the Houston Chronicle began sniffing around the region, planting a 100 monitoring devices to find out what people are breathing. The paper's five-part series, In Harm's Way, just hit the newsstands. Reporter Dina Capiello is part of the Chronicle's investigative team, and she joins us from Houston. Hi, Dina. Hello, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Also joining us from Houston is Terry Nunez. She's a resident from the area, and I understand, Terry, that you had one of the paper's air sampling devices uh, planted near your home.
4: Yes, sir, I did. Where exactly do you live? I live kind of behind the chip channel on a dead end street, and the water's right behind me. Hmm. Well, didn't you smell the air? Oh, definitely. You can definitely smell it.
0: And didn't you think something was wrong?
4: Well, we've asked a lot of questions, and they just say it's a burn-off that comes off, and it's not harmful. And we just kind of left it at that until Dina came by and talked to us.
0: Well, why now? Why did the Chronicle take a closer look now? I mean, you know, everybody knows if you live near a chemical plant, you're going to be breathing in something you shouldn't.
5: Well, it was really um, generated by me. As a reporter, I was doing a lot of stories on these flaring events where a fireball goes off and it smells and there's black smoke and people call me quite a lot. So I would talk to these residents and they'd be like, oh, my God, the smell is just unbelievable. You know, my dishes rattle, my windows rattle. There's this film, I can't get off my car. And then you would call...
0: You mean the dishes rattle because of these flaring events? Because
5: of, yeah, because they generate a lot of energy and basically, you know, the ground, you can feel the ground vibrate. At Terry's house, her sliding glass doors vibrate. And I would hear this from residents and then you would call up the company or the county pollution control and they'd be like, well, we went out there and did these tests and it it, it came back fine. And I was like, Okay, something <laughs> something's going on here.
0: But the state was monitoring the 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 air there, right?
5: Yeah, the state does monitor the air, but you know, although we have a lot of monitors in and around Texas, the problem is they monitor only most of them only monitor once every 6 days. And as Terry will tell you, the two monitors near her house aren't really that near her house very few of these monitors that the state runs are really kind of up against the fence. You know, right near Terry's house along a street called Gober Street. I mean, the backyard the ends at the chemical company's fence.
0: So Terry, what's it like to to live there?
4: Mm, in the beginning we really didn't think about it and then we started seeing, you know, different colors of dust on our vehicles and our glass shattered a couple times we had to have it fixed and then we started wondering but we still didn't pursue anything and the smells obviously most definitely and until Dina approached us I guess we really just didn't know we just kept living day by day not knowing. I understand you
0: you kept a diary during the, the sampling yeah?
4: Yes sir I did when Dina contacted me I decided to do that you know, for her and for me just so I would know and, and let my family know what was going on, and, and I did keep a diary of things happening.
0: Well, can you remember something from your diary?
4: Um, yes, sir. I work a lot of weird hours because I work with the railroad, and I was getting up like 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, and usually in between 2 and 4, they'd have really high flares, and that's when the house was shaking, and sometimes it would shake so hard it would wake you up. And I noticed that, and I started documenting it. And because of my weird hours, I did catch a lot of things that normal people didn't catch.
0: So what did you find? What did these monitors show?
4: We
5: found basically three chemicals um, of concern in most of the areas. And those chemicals were 1,3-butadiene, which is primarily used um, to make rubber. Terry's house was one of the houses that we actually measured butadiene Um, This is pretty rare for a couple reasons. One, these monitors actually degrade butadiene. So typically you don't see it even when it's there, which says that it was probably very high when we were sampling. Well, it just so happens that Terry lives next door to the third largest emitter of butadiene in the state of Texas, which is Texas Petrochemicals. They make butadiene, which they sell to Goodyear next door to make tires. Besides butadiene, we also saw benzene in two neighborhoods that a, a scientist said would be like sitting in traffic 24/7. The levels that we found, particularly in Terry's neighborhood, would definitely increase, you know, your cancer risk there. Um, you know, typically an acceptable risk level in a community is about one additional cancer case in a million people. In Terry's neighborhood, some of the levels were between a hundred to four hundred cases in a million people
0: and what's the third chemical?
5: The third was chloroform, and chloroform's kind of a funny one because it has a variety of sources, and we saw it most prevalently in Terry's neighborhood again. Terry's neighborhood was a kind of ground zero for our study I mean she lives and definitely lives on the 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 most polluted block based on our research and uh, that was actually just borne out by the state who released some data from 2003 that showed butadiene in the Manchester area of Houston would cause, you know, if inhaled over 70 years at that concentration, 24 hours a day, 200 additional cases of cancer in a million people. That's a very heavy risk. But chloroform can come from chlorinating wastewater. And it just so happens that Terry (laughs) has the unique distinction of having the house with one of the highest chloroform levels. And shocker, she lives right next to one of the state's, um, excuse me, one of the city of Houston's wastewater treatment plants. So So that's
4: probably the source there.
0: So Terry, this is the stuff you and your family are breathing in. Mm,
4: Yes, it's very scary. (laughs) You got kids? I have five children, that's why we have a totally new view now. (laughs)
0: Well, do you let them play outdoors? Are you planning to move?
4: Yes, we are planning to move now. We just bought this house five years ago with no clue. We just thought it was harmful stuff because that's what the chemical plants always tell us. Or harmless, I'm sorry. <laughs> they always said it was harmless, and now that we know different, we are planning on moving.
0: Dina, I understand that some of these chemical companies and petroleum companies are actually uh, buying up the private houses around their, their plants.
5: Yeah, this this was really, you know, something I didn't expect, but one of the things I saw in county after county was just neighborhoods of foundations. No houses there, you know, weeds coming up in where driveways used to be. And it's a trend throughout southeast Texas where these companies have just started buying what they call buffer zones, what they call them. Or green zones is another term. And they're just they start at the typically at the houses closest in. They get typically get an appraiser and they go out there and they offer people money for their home and property. Some cases they sell the home back to the person so they can move it. And I mean whole neighborhoods have disappeared. And, you know, for some people it's a great solution. Get me out of here, I can, you know, afford a new mortgage. But for some people, and a lot of them are elderly they're kind of stuck. And so you see people that, you know, don't have anybody to play dominoes with, or in this area called Worcester, which is just west of Exxon Mobil's refinery, which is the largest in the U.S. actually, the city has to come out and let out the fire hydrants twice a month because there's so few people there, the drinking water backs up in the pipes and the chlorine and all the other things concentrate. When we started looking into it and started probing into it more, um, we talked to a lawyer in Houston and, you know, basically we got some internal memos from a company in the Houston area that show, well, they call it buffer zones. It's really more for liability reasons, to reduce the risk of liability. It's it's much harder to prove somebody has a health effect or their property is, is encroached upon when they're farther away from a plant. And it's also to kind of shut down the complaints you know the people that are left behind you no know, one of them says in the article you know there's nobody else to, to gripe out here anymore <laughs> there's so few voices to kind of stir up trouble and get things changed
0: Terry it's enough to make
4: you sick I mean literally
0: um, has it?
4: We have noticed a lot of changes um, we aren't sick people we were constantly busy running and doing stuff and we hardly ever get sick and when we did move there my husband started getting runny noses I did, my child did, and my older children. And I have animals, and my horses' eyes would be draining. They'd ha- constantly have draining from their noses, and we just couldn't understand it. And we thought, well, maybe it's change, or we just didn't know.
0: Dina, what does the state say, and uh, what about the chemical companies now, in, in light of your report?
5: Well, the state um, has already started to change some things. Um, you know. It's been kind of 10 years in the making. Um, Some of the articles criticizing how the state deals with air toxics go back 10 years. But um, there are no federal standards for air toxics. So one of the things that they're going to do is make every level set at the same level of risk. Currently in the state of Texas, you can have one chemical that's set at a level that's equal to one cancer case in a million people. And then another carcinogen could be set at a level that's 100 additional cancer cases in a million people. So there's just kind of no rhyme or reason how, about how these standards were set. And the state can't even tell you how they were set. You ask them, show me the data. How did you get this number? And they can't really defend themselves. So they're going to actually step back and start doing that. And just recently, they began to look at their air pollution data and, in a larger scale, look at it in terms of cancer risk. But, you know, again, Bruce, you have to remember, we're in Texas, and um, the industry is very powerful, and uh, the industry is very clear in my story, and they do not want these to be standards. They do not want this to be, you go above this, you're in trouble. So it's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting to see, you know, as the state kind of opens up the, 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 opens it up for debate, whose voice is heard.
0: Well, Dina, thank you very much. Thank you, Bruce. And Terry, thank you.
4: Oh, thank y'all for inviting me.
0: Terry Nunez is from southeast Houston, Texas, and Dina Capiello is a reporter with the Houston Chronicle. To read the Chronicle's entire five-part series in harm's way, visit our website at livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. Coming up, a river runs through it again. Owens Valley, California, that is. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Kellerman. Coming up, one landlubber's quest to become a salty dog. But first, a century ago, Los Angeles, then just a small city, was running out of water. So, L.A. officials, in a move that would be hard to imagine today, used under-the-table payments, arm-twisting persuasion and outright fraud, to seize control of a river that ran through ranching country 200 miles to the north. The Owens River was diverted out of its valley and into a pipeline, quenching the growing city's thirst, but leaving the Owens Valley high and dry. Now decades later, valley residents have scored a major legal victory that, as Ilsa Setziel reports. We'll have water flowing through the old riverbed once again.
6: In the Owens Valley, on the east side of the Sierra Nevada Mountains, there's a sharp turn in the Owens River. The river flowed here for tens of thousands of years, digging down deep into the earth, cutting an 800-foot gorge. But it hit a patch of granite and had to yield, creating the bend. In more recent history, the river has bent to human needs and desires. Power plants and L.A.'s water diversions dried up the Owens River. But today it has returned, at least along nine miles of the gorge. Brian Tillmans with the L.A. Department of Water and Power looks down at a green ribbon of willows and cottonwood trees at the bottom of the Rocky Canyon.
7: We went from a desert environment to a continuous riparian corridor in probably about three to four years. And these trees that weren't here 13 years ago are now 25 to 40 feet high.
6: Tillmans oversees environmental restoration for the Department of Water and Power, or DWP. He says the gorge is a model for restoring 62 miles of the river that runs south of here. It's the largest project of its kind ever undertaken in the West. Tillmans says they're planning to take water that now flows into an aqueduct bound for LA and send it back into the original riverbed.
7: We're also gonna send down what's called seasonal habitat flows. And those are flows that'll come down to mimic the snowmelt. Those will be the higher flows that will provide the ability to put the sediments up on the bank and recharge that floodplain aquifer and get the seeds and of the uh, woody species and that established in the outer perimeters of the floodplain.
6: Behind Tillman's white-throated swifts dart out of nests in the cliff. He says reestablishing the river and the plants and animals that rely on it is partly a matter of timing. For example, they didn't have to plant trees in the gorge.
7: Down below here we have cottonwoods and willows below this one site and there's little seeps that have persisted. If you come up here during the the springtime and the trees are putting out seeds, the thermals will take those seeds and you can just see the seeds drifting up canyon. Those are the trees that we were watching, those seed sources, and when they were pumping out the most seeds, that's when we were timing our flows to come down.
6: Just to get the Lower Owens River restoration started could cost L.A.'s Water Authority more than $20 million and enough water for 30,000 L.A. homes. But DWP, as some folks here point out, isn't doing all this because it's kind-hearted. The Water Agency's hand was forced by lawsuits. Still, water will flow into the Lower River beginning in the fall of 2006. Local environmentalists like Mike Prather are enthusiastic but wary.
8: If you look at the Lower Ones River Management Plan, it is is very general, there's very little detail in it and that is is one of the concerns. It's kind of like the Department of Water and Power wants us to just trust them and yet we've gone through a hundred years of of trust not being a, a good thing to do.
6: Crather is with the Owens Valley Committee. He's strolling along another stretch of the river that gets a little water now, but will get a lot more with the new project. Lesser goldfinches are harvesting seeds from small sunflowers, a Buick's wren sings, and an osprey circles over the tops of tall willows.
8: That's the osprey. He's wishing he could find something to eat. The river's not quite a great place for fish right now, but hopefully that'll be changing.
6: Crather hopes the project will create habitat for species that have either disappeared or become rare. That includes birds such as the least bell's vireo and the yellow-billed cuckoo. But he's not sure there'll be enough water to do it.
8: And the flows that they're proposing... Um may not bring water and nutrients up onto the oxbows where we want these gallery forests of willows and cottonwoods.
6: Some ranchers worry the flows will be too high, flooding pasture land they lease from the Department of Water and Power. And while the project will promote habitat for bass, bass aren't indigenous to the river, but they're popular with fishermen. It's unclear if native fish will ever return to the river and it won't be the wild, sometimes tempestuous river it once was.
7: People always think you have to get it back to exact pristine conditions, but man's part of the environment, part of the ecosystem. There are social needs for water and for electricity, etc.
6: Tillman says DWP can control the Owens River in a way that's beneficial to humans and creates a healthy river. For Living on Earth, I'm Ilsa Setziel.
0: To call Redmond O'Hanlon a travel rider would be like calling evil Knievel a guy who rides motorcycles. O'Hanlon's adventures and misadventures have taken him to the underside of natural history, on treks through jungles and swamps, hot on the trail of a rare rhino in Borneo, an Africa's version of the Loch Ness Monster. On his latest journey, he takes passage on the trawler Norlantian to see if he can hold his own as it sets sail for the deep sea, headlong into a Force 12 storm. He lived to tell the tale his new book is called trawler a journey through the north atlantic redmond hello
9: hi that's wonderful to be here
0: you know in your book we quickly learned that uh, you can't hold your own you're not even out of the harbor and you're praying to the god of porcelain
9: (laughs) absolutely right Uh, the idea for this book it it seemed wonderful at the time and in that presumptuous way i thought well I'll, i'll go out at the worst time of year And I knew a young man who eventually found me a trawler that had to go out, even if there was a hurricane coming in, as there was, because the young skipper of 32 owed two million pounds to the bank, so he couldn't afford to stay in harbour.
0: But you had a choice. I mean, you're not a seafaring guy. Why leave a, a loving wife, two young kids, and Tierra firma for a trawler filled with fish and some very, very strange men?
9: Well... I think the real answer to that question, I mean, apart, of, of course, you want a wonderful adventure story, but the the real answer is that when I was eight years old, I was brought up in a vicarage, so we had no money for holidays, but my dad, he could swap his parish with uh, a minister in the Church of Scotland, so we'd go on our holidays to Scotland. Now, this particular afternoon, I remember, was on an island in Orkney, and looking out over the sea, it was August, but there was a big swell running, And there was a trawler out there. But um, I could see that, to my father, this was a solemn moment. And he actually handed his binoculars down to me, which before then I hadn't been allowed to touch. They were sort of sacred objects. Um, And he said to me, those men on that boat, they don't know it, but they're brave. That's what courage is. I admire trawlermen almost as much as I admired the Spitfire and Hurricane pilots at Biggin Hill. He'd been the Padre right through the Battle of Britain and nothing had ever lived up to that uh, in his life from that moment on. But his, the seriousness of which he talked about these trawler and said, I want you to remember this. And I looked through the binoculars and uh, this brought this little blue trawler spookily close. But one moment she was on top of a wave and the next even the masts had disappeared and so instead of taking away from that afternoon an image of uh, courage, I uh, mean, of course, it was abject fear. I thought, that's what fear really is. And it took me until I was well over 50 to confront it. I knew I'd have to go out on a trawler sometime.
0: But you head right into a storm. I mean, that's your goal to head into this Force 12 storm.
9: Yes. And I very soon realized that, uh, well, I couldn't stand up. Not just that, but I never got the hang of how you sleep in a bunk when they sleep with their their hands clenched, you know, like uh, the feet of a bird on a bough. They they somehow or other stay where they're put. Uh, And I wasn't prepared for the quality of the fear that comes at you. See, in the Amazon, when... um, Even if it's a Yanomami with an eight-foot-long arrow and you're looking up the shaft and his face is impassive, part of you is thinking, my God, these are the real people. And another part of you is thinking, how flattering. This is man to man. He's actually going to take the trouble to kill me. How classy to be lifted up with the kinetic energy of this thing, pinned to the bark of a tree. What a great way to die. And of course, well, then you shake with fear, but it's all romantic and personalized. But out there, this vast ocean that really couldn't give a damn about anybody. I thought that sort of fear, well, it's intolerable, or I thought it was. I was only on this boat for two weeks, but uh, all the same, I've never had such a vivid, packed experience.
0: What is a Force 12 storm?
9: Um, well, that? was really what I was looking for. Now, I have to admit, it's a baby hurricane. That's the first time you're allowed to call a storm a hurricane when it hits Force 12. And they're actually quite common in the northeast Atlantic in January and February off the UK coast.
0: Let me ask you to um, read something. At the bottom of uh, page 126, it says, uh, It was Black Night.
9: Uh, I've got you. This is just um, as the storm is building up. It was black night, but the Norlantians' main stern searchlight was on, and the black night was a whiteout of spray, a chaos of whirling streaks of foam, in patches so thick that at first the lines and spirals seemed almost stationary in the inverted cone of the fierce rays of light. And then, as I withdrew my mesmerised gaze from the furthest penetration of the beam, which was not far... "'just enough to give me a glimpse of the Norlantian starboard gunwale. "'Now rolling down, down, digging into the waves I couldn't see. "'And would she come up? How could she come up? "'And why did she have to move her whole stern like that, "'a fast side-to-side rear-end waggle like a cat about to pounce, "'and then wallow deep down in, "'and slew obscenely left to right in a movement I'd certainly not felt before?' As I focused on the very brightest patch of spray and bunched foam a yard or two out from the searchlight, I realised that all this torn-up water was moving so very shockingly fast, and I felt sick. But it was not seasickness. No, it was far worse. It was entirely personal, hidden. The steely stomach-squeeze of genuine all-out fear. That sharp warning you get before you panic and disgrace yourself to yourself forever.
0: You have these periods of sheer terror that are punctuated by these long periods of boredom where you're gutting fish. How did you get through those, those periods of terror?
9: I think, well, of course, it's all perverted if you, if you know you're going to write about it afterwards. But it was more difficult to get through those periods of terror than anything I've ever experienced in the jungle. And sobering and humiliating and humbling, really. I mean, to think that that's how these young men earn their living. They have a week or two weeks rest, and they go straight out again. Uh, I don't understand how they do it, really.
0: Redmond, how would you describe the relationship of these men on the ship as opposed to when they're on land? Different? Oh, utterly
9: different. They can't help it, but as you have no sleep, it's just part of the brain mechanism. Tremendous talking goes on. The minute you're ashore, conversely, you are really silent, and you don't talk to your wife about your inner feelings. Indeed, I was told the only reason that they weren't fooled by me pretending to be a scientist and they knew I was going to write about it, I told them. But the point that why they wanted me there was that even if my book was, um, well, a piece of shite is actually what they said, but even if it was nonsense, maybe I would be able to describe their lives so they could give this book to the woman they loved, who would then understand that they hadn't been away having fun with their friends. She'd understand what the conditions were. She'd let them get home, sleep for 36 hours and then they'd go shopping, and then they could have sex.
0: (laughs) Well, they say you can trust a trollerman if he's got a wife. Why is that? If
9: he's got a wife at home. I was, uh, I mean, so many things surprised me on on board this boat, but they just want one woman who will be there to meet them. And as they said, it didn't matter what she looks like, as long as she's there for you, and there for you when you're away, and no in the bed with the Stromness
0: gravedigger.
9: <laughs> uh, the Stromness gravedigger must be some macho horror, I think.
0: Well, your book is really driven by dialogue, and, and the sailors are, well, pretty salty.
9: Yes, but it was strange first thing you don't nobody tells you you don't read about is the sleep deprivation so you have blocks of sleep of one hour which is not even enough for one normal 90 minute sleep cycle so the brain never has time to dream itself back into some kind of sanity so I think it tries to organize itself by talking instead of dreaming you talk incessantly your subconscious is suddenly right out there for everybody to see so you come ashore all you think is if I could have a drink, I could stop my brain racing in this terrible way. Uh, I could restore myself to myself. So they go, this particular crew, go to a little bar in Stromness in Orkney called The Flatty, where you have your first drink. Then you have a minivan, you go into the capital Kirkwall, I mean, a little town on the island, and there's a bar there that has enough space for scrapping. And you go fighting, and it's all in pursuit of it. You just want your brain to stop. But These guys, none of them had their own front teeth. Not just that, but they had a spare dental plate in the oilskin pocket. They knew they were going to have the next set of teeth buckled.
0: Redmond, how much can a, a trawlerman make on a, on a voyage, two-week voyage?
9: Uh, the value of this catch, now you have to remember it's a new fishery and they're deep-sea fish and their eyes are starting out of their head and a lot of them look horrible and the English housewife won't touch it. She wouldn't even go in to the fish monks if these things were on display. So they all go off to Madrid and Paris and Berlin, they go off to Europe in these big transports. And actually, the Scottish driver of uh, one of them I spoke to said, I will a feet it to the cat. It's for the foreigners, he said. <laughs> uh, but it goes into fish soup and it goes into paella, so it doesn't matter. But the value of the whole of this catch was, was 75,000 pounds.
0: So about $110,000, something like that.
9: Yeah, yeah. But it, so in terms of their communities on these little islands uh, in the far, far north of the UK, they, they're rich. trawlemen are rich. But it um, doesn't seem to me to be worth it for a moment. Facing that kind of injury rate, that sort of death rate, those conditions, having no sleep, are full of admiration. Fat old landlubber, I shall remain, I think. <laughs>
0: Redmond O'Hanlon is author of the new book, Trawler, A Journey Through the North Atlantic. Redmond, thank you very much. I do appreciate
9: well, thank it. Thank you. that's fun.
0: Just ahead... Baba Black Sheep in Paca City, Oklahoma? Yes sir, yes sir. And that's the problem. First, this note on emerging science from Jen Goodman.
3: We've all heard the saying that if you make your bed, you must lie in it. But scientists now believe that literally making your bed in the morning may be an unhealthy choice. Researchers at Kingston University recently discovered that house dust mites, which are thought to cause asthma and other allergies, cannot survive in the warm, dry conditions found in an unmade bed. Results from their study suggest that something as simple as leaving a bed unmade can remove moisture from the sheets and mattress so mites will dehydrate and eventually die. Beds are prime habitat for mites. A typical mattress may be home to anywhere from 100,000 to 10 million mites, which also live on sheets and pillows. In fact, 10% of the weight of a two-year-old pillow may be composed of dead mites and their droppings. This dust mite allergen is a factor in an estimated 50 to 80% of asthmatics, as well as in countless cases of eczema, hay fever, and other allergic ailments. In the next stage of research, the team of British scientists will use a computer model they developed to track how changes in the home can reduce the numbers of dust mites in beds. Heating, ventilation, and insulation features within the studied homes will be altered to monitor how the mites cope with these changes. Findings from their research could help building designers create healthier homes with reduced mite concentrations and encourage asthma and allergy sufferers to control the dust mite levels by simply leaving their beds unmade. That's this week's Known on Emerging Science. I'm Jen Goodman.
0: And you're listening to Living on Earth.
3: Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and the Argosy Foundation Contemporary Music Fund, supporting the creation, performance, and recording of new music. The Kresge Foundation, building the capacity of nonprofit organizations through challenge grants since 1924. On the web at kresge.org. The Annenberg Fund for Excellence in Communications and Education. And the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, from Vision to Innovative Impact 75 Years of Philanthropy. This is NPR, National Public Radio.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Under a new Environmental Protection Agency standard, more than a third of Americans live in counties with unhealthy levels of soot or small particles in the air they breathe. Scientists only recently have begun to understand the dangers of these microscopic particles. They're easily inhaled and can contribute to a host of diseases. In Oklahoma, near the border of Ponca Indian land, community members say one industrial plant has dumped so much carbon soot into the air, their farm animals are changing color. Ponca tribal leaders accuse state and federal officials of ignoring the problem. It's one reason the Poncas and a dozen other Oklahoma tribes have decided that maybe it's time they had more authority over their air and water. Vicki Monks has the story.
2: Come on. On
10: On a small acreage just south of Ponca City, Oklahoma, John Hoke runs a herd of white-faced sheep, a breed prized for pure white wool. Problem is, these sheep appear closer to black, an oily, sooty black. One right there in the
2: middle, look at her nose, around her nose nostrils, look how black it is. And up past her eyes, see them streaks up past her eyes? That's all what should be white. It's a pathetic thing to
10: see some kind of an animal like that. Mr. Hoke blames the condition of his sheep on smokestacks at a factory just up the road. It produces what's called carbon black. The plant superheats waste oil from a nearby refinery to produce ultra-fine carbon particles. They're used primarily to strengthen the rubber in tires. It's the ingredient that makes tires black. A stubborn black film covers just about everything on the Hoke property, from the tractor to the trees. A short walk across the grass and I noticed that my shoes and pants have collected black dust, halfway up to my knees. We are inhaling
2: it, anything around is inhaling it because it's a real fine powdery
10: dust and we're, uh, we're breathing it just as much as them sheep are. Carbon black itself might not seem to be harmful. It's pure carbon, the basic building block of nature. But frequently other toxic chemicals are attached. The particles can contribute to heart disease, chronic bronchitis, and asthma. California last year listed carbon black as a cancer-causing agent. UCLA toxicology professor John Froins is chairman of California's scientific review panel on toxic air contaminants. According to Professor Froins, it's generally accepted that particles may inflame the lungs, leading to mutations that can develop into cancer. And new research is finding that ultrafine particles may damage other parts of the body.
8: And so it's not just the issue of penetration deeply in the lung. You get them in your nose as well, and they end up in your brain. And so you have a potential for inflammatory effects in the brain, central nervous system, and you have a potential for carcinogenesis as well.
10: Professor Freunds explains that carbon particles lodged inside the body can produce other toxic compounds, in a sense, becoming engines that continuously manufacture substances with the potential to cause cancer.
8: So particles themselves can produce more damage to DNA than you might anticipate.
10: Continental Carbon's original owner, Continental Oil, Conoco, built this carbon black plant in 1953 on former Ponca Indian reservation land. Back then, Thurman and Thelma Buffalohead lived next door. Thelma says the top man at Continental Carbon assured the family that the company would build a state-of-the-art plant that would never pollute.
1: I said, will it get everything black when they move? And No, 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 it'll be all right, he said. I
10: hate to say that, but that's a lie.
2: Telling people that, and then it, it's dirty. I tell you, it's dirty still that way. Thurman Buffalo Head has a Ponca word for that. That's what lying means, ee sister. And the even that north side of Carbon Black, there was a stream of clear water. We used to go down and sit in that creek. But after that, you couldn't even do that. you get so
10: black, you know, touching everything down, down that creek. The buffalo heads say the land around the creek turned black soon after the plant was up and running, and it wasn't long before the carbon black had gotten into everything.
1: And uh, I had some chickens. They were white, and before I knew it, they were black chickens. Then we'd wake up with our nose, you know, just all black soot in the nose. and
2: Oh, sister, it's just that smell.
1: It goes into your nostril,
2: and I mean, that's, I mean you sleep with it, yeah. That's that's all I could tell you. It, it gets on your clothes and makes everything black. But they don't care, they don't care. They're gonna still lie and lie and lie and lie. And that's why we're in trouble,
10: yeah. We're in trouble today. The Buffalo Head family lived on part of an Indian allotment that once belonged to Harriet Rush in the Battle. The land had stayed in the family since 1895. But by the 1960s, Mrs. Rush in the Battle's descendants wanted to get away from the plant. They tried to sell the property, but no one wanted it. It was already too contaminated. And documents show the government was aware of the problem. Richard Ray Whitman reads from a 1969 memo written by the local Bureau of Indian Affairs superintendent.
9: Regarding Pank Allotment 435, Harriet Rush in the Battle. The subject allotment has been offered for public sale on several occasions without success because of heavy contamination from the carbon plant operated by Continental Oil. The owners have demanded some action be taken by the Bureau. Therefore, it is requested that an investigation be conducted. James D. Hell, Superintendent.
10: Four years after this memo was written, the BIA signed off on the sale of this contaminated land to the Ponca Tribal Housing Authority for the purpose of building low-income Indian homes. Because the rush-in-the-battle property was classified as restricted Indian land, the sale could not have taken place without BIA approval. According to BIA spokeswoman Nedra Darling, no one currently at the agency remembers the case. The U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development constructed 11 homes on the property, directly downwind of the plant.
1: They don't care about us in design. And they knew that this land was contaminated, but they put us here anyway just to sell the land. Now that was wrong.
10: Scotty Simpson lives in one of the Ponca homes. He discovered the BIA memo when he went digging through old government records to find out how he and his family ended up in this mess.
1: I got two little granddaughters and sometimes they come in and look like they rolled in charcoal. It's so bad. Now what actually is, is this harming our house? Nobody knows or nobody cares.
10: Thurman and Thelma Buffalohead say they still haven't escaped the effects of the plant, even though they now live more than a mile from Continental Carbon.
1: I, I smell the fumes uh, early in the morning, about four or five o'clock. They turn it loose. I, I smell it a lot of times, and it just makes me sick. And I told my husband, "Anguli blunted the queen." Now here comes.
2: She said that whatever we smell, it stinks. She said, and <laughs> then.
1: He got sick a while back. He he just got weak, you know. He had a lesion in his lungs, and uh, it could be caused from the carbon black, that's what I think. It's
10: likely the buffalo heads are smelling carbon disulfide, a waste gas that smells like rotting radishes. According to EPA, it's one of several toxic compounds released from the plant. Since the 1950s, Continental Carbon has been sold several times and now is owned by China Synthetic Rubber and the powerful Ku family of Taiwan. Through its public relations representative, Blake Lewis, the company said there's no link between carbon black and any health problems in the community. In fact, the company claims that the pervasive black dust is not carbon black at all, and it denies responsibility for Mr. Hoke's blackened sheep. The company has always operated within the standards or expectations,
7: uh, and in those rare instances where there's been a problem, we've addressed it. We've, we've made repairs to the plant where repairs were warranted, and I struggle a little bit with people that are, are making allegations that run against what I understand to be
10: the facts in the matter. Mr. Lewis blames most of the complaints about carbon black on disgruntled labor union members and Ponca Indian activists.
7: We know that there's been some individuals in the past who have uh, raised environmental questions basically as a corporate campaign to to dismear the company, but the fact of the matter is we have never had to stop operations because of an environmental problem. My view is that this plant is operating in a responsible fashion and will continue to do so in the future.
10: But complaints have been rolling in for decades, sometimes at the rate of more than 100 a month. DEQ, the Oklahoma Department of Environmental Quality, is the agency responsible for controlling pollutants in the state. Every time someone complains, DEQ sends an inspector to take samples of the black dust. But in nearly every instance, lab results indicate no carbon black. Spokeswoman Monty Alder now concedes the lab test was never valid. We didn't think the test
11: was giving us reliable results, but there was no other test to have done. Truly, the test was useless.
10: In order to be considered carbon black, the lab looks for particles that are perfectly smooth and round and tiny, smaller than one four millionth of an inch.
11: Here's the problem. We believe that as soon as carbon black basically leaves the stack or leaves the facility, it starts to stick together it starts to stick to mold particles, it sticks to dust particles, it sticks to dog hair. You send it to the lab and they look at it with the electron microscope, it's no longer round and it's no longer that very small size. So therefore, it cannot be considered by this test as
10: carbon black. Until recently, the state also insisted that inspectors must actually see dust particles crossing over the factory fence before taking any action.
11: If people called and said, there's dust coming off the plant, we would have to send someone to the facility and they would have to physically see the dust coming off the facility. And depending on weather conditions and depending on how close the local DEQ office was to that facility to get there, we may or may not have seen dust coming off.
10: With inspectors almost never present to witness blowing dust, and with the lab tests coming back negative, DEQ rarely took action in response to complaints. Nevertheless, spokeswoman Elder says she believes the agency was doing the best it could to prevent pollution.
11: I absolutely do, and EPA agrees with us. We have taken all appropriate actions.
10: That response doesn't satisfy community members who formed an unusual coalition of Indians, factory workers, and conservative white farmers. Under escalating criticism from these groups, DEQ changed its approach and a few months ago stepped up its inspections inside the plant. Inspectors found piles of carbon black drifting and exposed to the air and carbon-laden waste gas escaping through corroded pipes. The plant was pumping nearly twice its legal limit of carbon dust into the air, an average of 89 pounds every hour. (laughs) At the Ponca headquarters in White Eagle, Oklahoma, a few miles south of the carbon black plant, a group of tribal leaders have gathered to talk. They say they don't trust the DEQ to follow through with sanctions.
2: We have turned to them for help for the last several years and instead they turned around and helped the polluters. Of course, we cannot trust the state of Oklahoma.
10: Carter Camp advises the Tribal Council. As a longtime national leader of the American Indian Movement, Mr. Camp says he sees similar pollution problems on reservations all over the country.
2: We think this has to be stopped, and the only way this is going to be stopped is
8: for Indian tribes to be able to regulate their own uh, environmental quality of the people.
10: It's a complicated process, but under federal law, Indian tribes can win the right to set and enforce their own environmental standards. The Navajo Nation and the Pawnee Tribe of Oklahoma did so recently. The Poncas say tribal regulation couldn't help but improve on the DEQ's record. For its part, the Oklahoma agency does at last appear to be cracking down on the carbon black pollution. In December, the DEQ for the first time cited continental carbon for excess emissions, and the company agreed to spend $1.6 million to repair leaks and clean up drifting carbon dust. Throughout most of the last century, America's Indian tribes had little power to prevent environmental degradation of their lands, but Carter Camp believes that increasing scientific and legal expertise within the tribes is gradually changing that dynamic.
1: We're still here. And we're going to be here in the future, and we're going to clean up our land, and we're going to
0: ask the American people to ally themselves with us and help us to clean up this land. And then finally, maybe we'll clean up America.
10: In January, Continental Carbon paid a $5,000 fine, the first in its 50-year history. For Living on Earth, I'm Vicki Monks.
0: i would like to thank Richard Ray Whitman and John McGinnis for their help on this story. Every week, Living on Earth brings you stories about the environment. Now, it's your turn. We invite you to send us your stories. Just visit livingonearth.org for complete details. We'll tell you how to make a recording, which could be as simple as picking up the telephone or sitting down with a friend and talking into a tape recorder. Maybe it's a story about a close encounter with a wild animal, like this listener, who thinks she saw an endangered and elusive cougar run in front of her car on Route 390 near Rochester, New York.
10: A lot of different opinions as to whether or not this really happened. I'm pretty sure it did. Yep, because I was there. A cougar. A mountain lion. Right there. His ears flattened back. He was going so fast. It made an otherwise crummy Rochester March day. Very interesting.
0: I'd say. So, what's your story? We'll choose from some of your recordings and post them online. We might even put them on the air. This is not a contest, there are no winners, no losers, it's simply a call for self-expression. Visit livingonearth.org for directions, sample submissions, and a chance to tell your story. We leave you this week with a concert from a Canadian forest. Bernard Ford employed a few studio techniques and effects to create this composition based on a recording he made of a single wood thrush near Mount St. Hilaire in Quebec. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Jennifer Chu, Steve Gregory, Ingrid Lobet, and Jeff Young, with help from Kelly Cronin. Our interns are the Cates, Katie Oliveri and Katie Zemsef. Our technical director is Paul Wabreck. Allison Dean composed our themes. You can find us at livingonearth.org. Steve Kerwood's on vacation. I'm Bruce Kellerman. Thanks for listening.
3: Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, smoothies, and cultured soy. Ten percent of profits are donated to efforts that help protect and restore the earth. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations and the Ford Foundation for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues and the Town Creek Foundation.
12: This is NPR, National Public Radio.